Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. And those participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We are joined today by Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John as we continue our walk through the book of James. Uh, We concluded chapter three last week where we saw James or Jacob exhorting these Christians to be at peace. Indeed, he says a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Everything will be made right and peace is the end that the kingdom is heading towards. But we do need to remember and know that this is not some kind of um, maybe pacifism that James is talking about, a world without any kind of judgment. Judgment is actually a big theme in this book, in the book of James, and the coming judgment, especially the coming judgment and righteousness by God is the fuel for the peacemaking life uh, of the church. And uh, here in chapter four, we're going to see a bit of James fleshing this out, what it means to be peacemaking. Uh, And in reading this passage, it's clear that living in righteousness and peacemaking is going to be difficult and is proving difficult uh, for this group of Christian exiles. It looks like they're tempted to, or at least are actually committing sins against their Jewish oppressors by fighting the way that they fight. Uh, So to hear this passage, we're going to have uh, Jeff read from his translation of chapter four. James four, one through five. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war among your members? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You are zealous and cannot obtain, so you fight and make war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says the spirit he has caused to indwell us is intensely jealous thus far, God's word. So (laughs) this is the passage that needs some careful uh, attention, careful thought, because from appearances, from just reading through it, your initial thought is that, well, is, is he actually addressing specific sins in this congregation, such as them murdering? Are they going to war? Are they pursuing fights and quarrels? Is, is that what's going on? And lots of times I think biblical commentators say, well, no, that can't really be going on. These are more, this is more, uh, this is a very uh, intense language, but it's about spiritual realities or something like that. But I think we need to be careful here because all through this epistle, we've seen these people are oppressed. They want to see the righteousness of God enacted. They want God to make things right. They're angry about it. Uh, they give um, high, uh, you know, high, intense, intensely uh, uh, rhetorical speeches, apparently, uh, in order to uh, encourage people to curse their enemies. And there's been all this language already. So why would we be surprised if these Jewish Christians would mimic 
the the zealots in their in their day and age who were quite influential uh in fact leaders of the jews at this time seem to also be uh, insurrectionists and rebellious against rome and and uh at least behind the scenes encouraged it so why would we not think that in response to their oppression their banishment their exile and their torture and uh imprisonment which we see and know it's going on all through the book of acts and this is when this epistle is written why would we not think that they would be tempted to respond in kind and go to war against their enemies uh, maybe an, a, a guerrilla kind of warfare but nevertheless uh engage in in tit-for-tat kind of retaliation a retribution for the kind of suffering that they're engaged in. I think um, if you allow for that, uh, then you're, you're gonna read this in a different way. It doesn't mean it doesn't have any application, obviously to us. Uh, and uh, if we're not tempted to, to murder or to use violence or aggression against the enemies of the church, um, actually, I think sometimes we are, but if we're not engaged in that explicitly, it doesn't mean there's not uh, lots of lessons for us. But in order to, we shouldn't jump to those lessons first without trying to understand what they're going through in their time. So I have a quote in my commentary from uh, Bo Reiki and his epistle of James commentary in the Anchor Bible. He says this, we have no right to explain away or tone down the author's statements about these troubles as though he exaggerated or did not mean to be taken seriously as some expositors do out of respect for the early church and for other reasons. Historical honesty demands that we acknowledge the situation as it was rather than recreate it as we or others should like to have it been. Uh, they strive to acquire what they claim as their due in other words, the recipients of this letter, they strive to acquire what they claim as their due by violence and intrigue. Jeff, the comment that you briefly made then when you kind of paused and said, that doesn't mean that this has no application to us. Um, I think that's touching on a kind of broader issue, which is that when we're dealing with the New Testament or any passage of scripture really, and we do engage in a close contextual reading of it. So ground in, for instance, the issues to do with uh, table fellowship or various uh, Jewish issues at the time of the New Testament. Initially, it feels like it's less relevant to us. You know, it, it feels like it's become isolated and remote from us. But I feel that after harder work, um, you know, we can press through that and find that it does actually have um, uh, a, a real application to us, but it's, it's one that's kind of more sharp and focused and specific. And um, I think that's what's going on here when we think of the issue of using the world's means to try and achieve what we're after um, in this, the case of James, uh, kind of justice and, and recompense in, in, in various ways. There are so many ways in which that can be um, relevant, but it just takes you a bit longer to get there, you know. But it doesn't take you that long to get there. I mean, I think the, the notion here about using worldly tools of violence and impassioned rhetoric and political manipulation to try to bring about the kingdom, to try to bring about the peace that we want, to try to, 
to bring us back into the mainstream of of culture, say. Uh, so American Christians marginalized and expelled from academia and from media and that kind of thing. Well, uh, we're tempted to use, uh, you know, right now at least, worldly tactics. Um, we we and so James is James' uh, condemnation of that is uh, is very relevant. I think uh, his repeated admonitions to be patient and long suffering. Um, to trust God, to ask God to uh, to do the judging, um, and to take care of business at home, like you know, orphans and and widows, and being merciful to people who need help. That 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 I mean, there, there's this tendency today to think somehow if that's all the church is doing, then the church is not really being powerful. That's we're we're, we're impotent when all we do is is uh, do those kinds of things, take care of people, raise families, children, um, you know, work hard, be productive. Um, we, we just need to do more and do more often than means, uh, you know, impassioned rhetoric, like we were talking about earlier before the podcast uh, on social media. Um, and then we, we get carried away. And I think James has a lot to say to us about those things, because we can be zealots as well. In verse two, uh, you desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet, in the ESV says covet, but the word is zealon, and you're zealots. Um, you can't obtain, so you fight and you engage in violent aggression. Well, that's a temptation for us, and I think it's going to be more and more a temptation for Christians as time goes on, as things appear to be getting worse uh, at least in in America and probably also in Europe and UK, uh, although I don't know as much about that situation. James, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, seems to be very concerned also to trace these impulses back to their source. So why are people engaging in this conflict or in murder? Um, ultimately, it comes back to unruly desires and passions. Um, so at the very outset, what is what is the factor that's causing these fights among you? Why are we seeing all these different problems? You need to see that the passions that have been mastered within you, that those are the source of all of this. So we have something similar, of course, in uh, Matthew 5, when Jesus talks about the way that that anger within the heart leads to murder. And in that particular challenge, he's going all the way back to um, Genesis 4, when the Lord confronts Cain. Why has your face fallen? Why are you angry? And until Cain actually realizes the true source of the problem, sets it right there, um, that impulse is going to be unmastered and it's going to be going out towards that more active form of murder of his brother Abel. And here we have something very similar. Um, what is the cause of all of this? It's desiring and not having. It's that not obtaining in this sort of zealous um, approach. And all of these problems need to be understood in that area of desire. And this is, I think, a common theme of scripture, that the deeper analysis of the law leads us to recognize just how central the 10th commandment is as a form of interpretation of the others. So when we realize that Ultimately, these things come down to postures of the heart 
and managing our desires, um, we begin to see where does um, adultery or where does murder or where does um, theft come from? It comes ultimately from this unmanaged covetousness or zeal. Um, elsewhere, we see the way that the way to approach oppose that or resist that is by um, Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection. It's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's loving your neighbor as yourself that will enable you to deal with these unruly passions. Likewise, in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, it's loving your enemy that will enable you to resist that urge to engage in conflict and murder. Right. I think it's a useful imaginative exercise to take biblical characters and think of them as archetypes for, for obviously Christ, uh, but also the church. And it's, it's interesting to read this passage, the first few verses, uh, as Jacob speaking to Esau and the church is acting like the foolish, passionate, warring brother who didn't get what he wanted and is starting to quarrel and fight and covet and pursue things uh, that he should not be going after. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, uh, Brian. That's good. Um, there's a, some something of a two-edged sword here when we're talking about passions and what they desire, because we know they want the righteousness of God. Back in James one nineteen, they are James one nineteen and twenty. We we know they want a harvest of righteousness. We know they want God to make things right. They know that we know they want justice. They desire justice, but the means they're going about it is the wrong way. But then also, uh, it appears also they want to spend it on their passions, verse 3. So as Alistair just said, they appear to be coveting. Uh, so, uh, you know, you could uh, translate verse 2, covet or zealous, either way. But they appear to be coveting the power and the prestige uh, that their Jewish oppressors have, and they want that. So they, in other words, their passions here can either be a passion for the kingdom of God and the righteous God, but it's also that passion maybe for their own exaltation or for retribution and vengeance. Um, uh, this is, this kind of fits in also with the whole zealotry movement in the first century where the Jews wanted to reestablish their own, you know, nation as a uh, prominent and righteous okay and there's you know something commendable there maybe but they also then were mimicking uh rome they wanted to be like rome they wanted the power they wanted the the uh, uh, uh what rome had and that was not helpful uh so they resorted to similar tactics that rome employed to gain her uh authority uh, through military prowess and so here, here we have this insurgent violence here, um, as well with these Christians. And and I'm sorry, I don't mean to be taking up so much here, but the other thing, interesting, this is their world. So we have this, you adulterous people do not know the friendship with the world is enemy of God. This is the world they lived in. Friendship with the world would be adopting the mindset and the tactics of the apostate Jewish nation and the Romans uh, or, or the Greek culture with regard to power, with regard to authority, with regard to, you know, the whole way, the social, the social 
setup is maintained. That's, you know, worldliness here is not, you know, wearing colorful clothes or drinking wine with your friends or, or going to work every day and, and earning money and putting it away and saving. I mean, it's not about the material world. It's about this world that they're living in that we read about all through the New Testament. It's what Jesus opposed, what Paul opposed. Um, it's the worldliness of apostate Jews and uh, uh, and Roman, the whole Roman way of, of doing things. That's uh, that's helpful, Jeff. And and kind of bound up with all of that, I think, is is the issue of timing. You know, um, chapter chapter three ends. I think Brian mentioned it, it ends with the in, injunction. You know that the people should be sowing in in peace um and that describes what they should be doing and chapter four is obviously what they are in fact doing which is a sharp a uh, very sharp contrast and um part of the contrast is is very obvious i think you know peace and anger are, are directly opposed but i think another aspect of it is is the timing of the thing um Sowing is obviously all about kind of patience and trust. Um, it, it's about doing what you can do and, and then waiting and trusting that in God's time that the results will come. Uh, it's the next chapter, isn't it? See how the farmer waits for the fruit of, of the earth and for the latter day rains and, and, and so forth. And by contrast, I think anger and violence is about getting something quick uh, it's about a quick resolution to um, problems and taking matters in, into your own hands rather than um, trusting that things will work out in God's uh, timing and so I think there is the sort of the peace anger contrast but I think there's also the kind of the the sowing and waiting versus taking what you're after now um, in, in your own steam I think that's there as well and much of the confidence we should have is that the Lord does want to give good gifts to his children, but he wants us to learn wisdom in the manner in which he gives them to us so that we do not desire the gift in an inappropriate way. It is appropriate for Christ, his reign to be demonstrated over his enemies. It's appropriate for the people of the Lord to be vindicated against their accusers. It's appropriate for the church to be lifted up and to be successful in its mission but there is a way in which we can seek these things that is for our own desires it's for our own sense of um that is about gratifying ourselves rather than actually seeking what we should be seeking and so often the way in which god answers our requests is by teaching us the patience by which we will learn how to desire these things aright and Throughout this book, we have, um, as you mentioned, James, these references to the way of the farmer who needs to be patient, who needs to await those rains. And the Lord is going to give the harvest, but it's going to come in his proper time. And when it comes, it will not just be something for our own desires. It will not just be um, something that allows us to gloat over some other side as if we're engaged in the same sort of conflict as they were just from the other another vantage point we will learn that the means of our struggle are very different from the means that the world offers to us not least in the uh, impatience of anger and the heatedness of anger compared to the calm patient 
confidence of the person who looks to the Lord in prayer and rather than just responding in kind to what the world is giving us um, is able to look up to a heavenly father who desires the good of his people and be confident that he will give us what we need and in the meantime to rest upon that goodness and to await it with faith. Yeah and to not have that kind of attitude and posture toward God and and toward what you legitimately want in the world is idolatry. Um, the, the language here in James chapter four, uh, these first 12 verses is severe. Um, so verse four, you adulterous people, that that's the language of idolatry in the Hebrew scriptures. That's what's used by Hosea uh, as Israel's unfaithful to Yahweh turning to worship other gods. Um, now, James levels the charge of adultery against these Christians, and they're not, not because they're worshiping actual idols of wood and stone, but, but it appears like their actions betray the reality that their hearts are giving over, given over to idolatry uh, and the kind of idolatry that plagues the Jewish nation, you know, the comfort, security, the peace that's obtained at any cost. Violence, political scheming, doesn't matter. So these Christians here, these Jewish believers, would never dream of bending their knee to a statue of a Roman god, but somehow they're acting like the Romans act, and they're acting like the apostate Jews act, and they have submitted to this narrative of power gained through worldly strength that stands behind, stands behind all of those uh, idolatrous pagan statues um but it is again coming back to this wow adulterous people he's talking to a community of christians here enemies of god um and also then in verse five uh, he quotes that scripture about the spirit he caused to indwell us is intensely jealous there again you have marital language okay you adulterous people don't you know that you're married to Yahweh, you're married to Jesus, and the spirit within you is zealous, is, is mm. jealous about uh, bringing you back to himself uh, and not having you uh, uh, couple with these other idols, whether they're idols of idol uh, you know, literal physical idolatry or ideology and methodology. Uh, stop it. You are married to Jesus, and he is the one you are to follow and trust in all these things. Yeah, I think it's I think it's good to see the method here that Jacob James is using. You know, they're filled with these passions, they're they're fighting, they're quarreling, and then he comes and roughs them up <laughs> uh, a bit. He comes and I mean, if you you know, look at verse five, you know he yearns zealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. You know, this is the new temple that the spirit is dwelling in and things are happening in the temple temple that ought not be happening there. And James essentially comes in and overturns the tables and, and roughs them up and tells them to bow down and humble themselves and uh, clean themselves up. So this, this is not a uh, urge to some kind of limp-wristed Christianity that doesn't have any rough edges. It's just knowing how to use it well by the spirit and with wisdom. It's helpful to see in verse six um, that there is grace available to them. There is 
power and help. And then he quotes, uh, well, loosely quotes Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I mean, it it's important to remember that Proverbs is written to by Solomon to his son to prepare him for the day when he will rule over Israel, to prepare him for righteous rule, for just rule. So James rebuking these Christians for the misguided way in which they're seeking to rule with Christ over his kingdom. They want to be exalted. They want to, um, they want to be, let's see, where was it? It's grace to the humble, submit yourselves to God, uh, resist the devil. He will flee from you, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you, cleanse your hands. So all of this, all of this that they want can be given to them by God's grace. Uh, if they humble themselves, verse 10, before the Lord, he will exalt you. Okay. So their desire, at least the good side of their desire, is to be exalted and not to be laid low like they have been. And the way that happens is not the way they think. It's the way of wisdom. It's the way of, of Proverbs. It's the way of wisdom literature. It's humility. Um, it's submitting to God. It's not, it's, uh, it's all these things here. Even, even the resist the devil and he will flee from you. You, you can't, he's already referred to demonic wisdom at the end of chapter three. You can't but help a thing to think about Jesus when he is, is, is uh, carried by the devil up onto a high mountain and showed all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil says, I'll give all these things to you if you bow down to me. In other words, if you do what I do, if you worship me and follow me, you can have it all. Well, wait a minute. Resist that, as Jesus did, and the devil will flee from you, and you'll get what is promised, but it won't be in the demonic way. It'll be in Jesus' way. Right. And, and, and what the devil is offering Jesus is, in a sense, just a, a, a quick, a, a quick win. I mean, it's not a genuine offer, but, you know, the kingdoms of the earth are Jesus's anyway, and God will give them to him when he raises him from the dead and, and exalts him and gives him all power and authority. So it's coming to him anyway. Um, but the devil, the devil is obviously tempting him with a, well, you can have it now. Um, without the patient waiting and, and the suffering that's going to go before it. And, and so I feel like there's that um, idea of timing again, kind of uh, in the background at least. And behind a lot of this is a problem that the people seem to be having, that they're praying and not receiving apparent answers to their prayer. And part of what James gives us is um, insight into how to deal with situations where our prayers do not seem to be answered. Um, one of the things we need to do is go back and examine our desires and our motivations and recognize from the very outset that the Lord wants to give us his good gifts. It's not that the Lord is withholding and it can be very easy for us to jump to that explanation. We're not getting answers to our prayers. Obviously, um, God is not as good as we once might have thought that he was. Maybe we just need to lower our view of God a few pegs and then we'll be able to go on with our lives. But no, we go with that confidence that we have in 
Jesus' teaching that ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find that God is a good father who wants to give good gifts to his children and he knows what's best for us. And then James propels the people back to an understanding of the character of God's grace that God, his presence within us by his spirit is a jealous presence. He's not going to allow um, his gifts, his um, things that he wants us to enjoy as his children, to be things that cause us harm and that give um, access and power to the devil. Rather, he wants to purge our desires of those sinful passions so that when we receive his good gifts, they will be good for us. And so dealing with our impure hearts, our double-mindedness, our um, all these thin sins that prevent God's good gifts from being received as they ought to, these are all ways in which we can fit ourselves to receive those gifts. And so there's an approach here, I think, that more generally we can adopt when we feel our prayers being frustrated as the people that James is writing to. Their prayers were frustrated, but was not because God is not a good giver, but because they were desiring in the wrong way. And once those desires were dealt with, and the Lord wants to give grace to us to deal with those um, misguided desires, then the prayers will start to be opened and answered. Notice that uh, you come back to what James said in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 about double-mindedness. So cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Um, so double-minded man remembers the man who wants wisdom but he's not willing to go through the process of steadfast and joyful submission and obedience in the midst of suffering in order to gain that wisdom as uh, uh, James said earlier is this this timing issue is so important in wisdom literature is um, what's the point of all this suffering? Why am I, why am I doing this? How, how, how is it that God who has promised to be, to bless the righteous is not blessing the righteous? Uh, uh, maybe I should take this in my own hands so that being double-minded is in this, in this case, I think is rejecting the way that Jesus has promised that things will be restored, that all things will be made right. Obedience through obedience, through humility, through suffering, through waiting for God's judgment. Um, rather, if you're double-minded, you pursue the world's assumption. You're a friend of the world regarding how change and renewal take place. And that would be through manipulation, violence, political scheming, um, and other kinds of power moves. Uh, that's a double-minded person, and they're not going to receive what they want, even if what they want is is a legitimate desire, the righteousness of God. It's not going to happen. Um, and I mean, this is so in, in James's mind. This is so severe. Their their problems, their issues, their sins are so severe that he ends this little section by with this strong stuff be wretched and mourn and weep 
and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I, I can't help but think again of the Beatitudes. Uh, to mourn is to live by faith, according to the promise of Jesus, to live as though it's really true that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But again, mourning comes before comfort. Um, and right now, the, they, they must mourn not only their, their desperate situation, which is legitimate to mourn even apart from sin, uh, because they did nothing wrong to be banished, but they're to be wretched. Uh, they're to lose all joy because not only are they in these desperate situations because of the oppression of their uh, their enemies and God's enemies, but they're putting themselves in this situation because of their sin, because of the way they're going about responding to their enemies. Jeff, you've suggested that what's going on here is that these um believers have, have literally been driven or driven themselves, I, I guess, to murder and um, connected to their lusts and desires. And this shouldn't surprise us. It's, it's in chapter 115, isn't it? Lust or desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And it seems that that literally is, is what's come to pass. And I find that I find what you're suggesting like just a plausible way of reading this because the the um the imperative then cleanse your hands um feels very really, very relevant to me very often in the prophetic literature or, or elsewhere it's hands that shed blood you know um the very first murder um Cain it said the earth has uh, opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands and um proverbs talks about hands that shed innocent blood um in isaiah quite pointedly it opens god says he i will not listen um to your prayers as is happening in james um because your hands are full of blood and so um that imperative cleanse your hands I, I think contextually that that works well here yeah that's a great point um a very good point it, add, add to that two things. One is, do we forget that there's a great deal of killing, uh, even assassinations in the book of Acts? Uh, there's a great wow. deal of violence. There's imprisonment. There's torture. There's torture of men and women. Uh, there's uh, there's the Jews, at least on a, well, a number of occasions, trying to, to kill Paul. And then when he's finally arrested by the Romans, uh, having a cabal about assassinating him so that 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 these christians who are being treated like this would not be tempted to respond in kind uh i i find it hard to believe that they weren't uh and that this this whole book is what what's uh what keeps the early christians from actually following through on that in any meaningful way the other the second thing to say is that the greek word here used for murder or for slaughter um, is 10 times in the New Testament. Every case, it means literal murder. And in fact, in chapter five, verse six, it is about murder. Uh, you have condemned 
you have murdered the righteous one. He does not resist you. That's in the prophetic warning against, I think, the uh, Jewish leaders. They, they killed Jesus. So um, if they're physically torturing and killing disciples of Jesus, is it really all that surprising that someone want to fight back by killing their oppressors, by engaging in a kind of guerrilla warfare against them? I mean, the Jews have been doing that with the Romans for apparently decades, well, decades, no, for centuries, ever since the, the, um, the Maccabees. So um, I don't know why, why that we would want to resist the fact that there's actually murder going on. And then add to it, of course, your comment, James, I think it's helpful about hands uh, and how often that is uh, connected with uh, shedding blood. We might also recall the way that Peter, um, his first instinct when he saw the party coming to arrest Jesus in the garden was to strike out and to um, use violence. And that, if you consider friends of yours being taken by the authorities, women and children being killed um, from your congregations, um, even your own family members, you can imagine that instinct of to violence stirring within you and being very hard to resist. And so the teaching that James is giving here concerning the character of God's spirit within us um, and the manner in which we need to desire the things that we desire um, would be very important. I think one of the um, most alarming and arresting things here is the whole language of adultery. Um, if we think about the context within which we typically find that within the Old Testament, it's when the nation is in free fall of apostasy, um, maybe leading up to um, the destruction of Jerusalem or something by the Babylonians. Whenever it is, it, it's a really serious accusation. And yet here we're having it addressed to a New Testament congregation, which is surprising to us. And yet what's being taught, I think, is very much in line with um, what we find elsewhere, that the Lord's Spirit is um, jealous for his bride, and the way in which that bride acts in keeping itself pure from the world and the world's ways and from the pollution of blood um, is absolutely imperative. If we're going to be a faithful people, we have to resist the allure of um, violence and this sort of zealotry because this is not the way of the lord at all right i mean i'm, I'm not at all sure about this so i've wondered if quite subtly there is the whole um right of jealousy the numbers five underlying parts of this because the church here i guess it has aroused the lord to jealousy over them their husband and they are said to have um been cursing and, and that's likened to bitter water and i wonder if kind of part of the idea here is that for them to continue and to escape judgment um them, themselves as, as a church they've got to now um kind of repent and humble themselves and and if not those curses will sort of that bitter water will come down on themselves really they will be judged by their own words and i wonder if some of that might subtly be in the background here what does it mean there in um, verse 11 that those who 
speak against a brother or judge a brother speaks evil against the law and then judges the law. He goes on to say, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then there's the connection with the lawgiver. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save you, to save and to destroy. But who, who are you to judge your neighbor? Um, are these Christian brothers in the community that they're in? Is this their formerly Jewish brothers? And then how does speaking evil against one judge the law or speak evil against the law? Yeah, good question. Um, I, it, it, it's possible, I think, to understand the language speak evil in the larger context of the epistle. And that would be, you know, angry, intemperate speech spoken by unbridled tongues, remember? And uh, then um, chapter three, all the cursing that happens and the whole community then gets stained by this. Mm. Uh, so uh, it, it's, I don't, I don't think it's too hard to, to uh, envision if this community is outwardly engaged in uh, retribution or attempts to uh, recover their status by means of aggression and violence, that that would also have an inward facing element. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I mean, I, I, I can remember times when in my church uh, where we were, I think we were focused too much on criticizing other Christians other churches, other ways of worshiping, um, other doctrinal formulations. This is early on in my ministry. Uh, and, you know, young men in the ministry can, can be that way. Okay. Well, it turns out when you, that's your focus or that's kind of how you envision the way your church is interacting with the world and with the broader church, uh, well, <laughs> that critical spirit, that judgmental spirit will end up also turning inward so that um, there, there was a lot of also inner turmoil and judgment and criticism about other Christians and all sorts of different ways, the way they raise their kids or whatever. Um, and so speaking evil against others outside the church in inappropriate ways can also lead to speaking evil against brothers inside the church. Um, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of my experiential uh, answer. I didn't answer your question about uh, against the law mm-hmm. and judging the law. Hmm. You're supposed to be a doer of the law and not a judge. I do wonder whether part of what James is getting at here is the way in which we can be tempted in situations where we see manifest injustice and um, to try and take the law into our own hands. We take on the role of the judge who speaks evil in a more formal sense. Um, they condemn and they are acting in a capacity that is official. They stand for the law. And when they speak evil, it's not just a personal statement. It's a statement of how the law stands relative to that person. Likewise, if we act as judge and try and sentence other people by taking violent action, for instance, against them. The law is not avenging the people of the Lord. And so we need to 
um, take things into our own hands. And when we take that sort of attitude, that is not in keeping with the law. It actually proves to be contrary to the law. The person who's acting in a vigilante fashion or the person who's um, placing themselves up as a law to themselves or a law over other people, um, they are not honoring the law at all. They're quite the opposite. And so recognizing that the Lord is the lawgiver and the judge. And in situations of injustice, we should look to him and appeal to his court rather than taking the law into our hands is imperative if we're going to truly honor the law rather than be those who usurp its place. Yeah, that's that's excellent. Um, interestingly, uh, that doesn't keep James himself from prophetic announcements against their rich oppressors. Um, so uh, there, there is there's there's a there's still a place for prophetic judgment, but not setting ourselves above the law, as you'd mentioned. Uh, yeah, Elser, that that was a good that was helpful. And and surely, sorry, Jeff, just interrupting, but surely that kind of prophetic judgment and imprecatory psalms and and what have you is is surely meant to. Um, make us less violent as individuals you know because that is giving things over to the lord and implicitly then waiting on him to do that rather than uh, taking matters in, into our own hands and you know at first blush probably um, someone out in the world if they saw christians reading and chanting imprecatory psalms they would think this is going to make them very violent but surely the purpose is 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 the opposite you know, it's to make them not take matters into their own hands, but to leave place to the Lord who has said, vengeance is mine, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, hey, there is a proper way to make judgments about other people. After all, James himself is critiquing these folks pretty severely. Um, so we shouldn't lift statements like the one in verse 12, who are you to judge your neighbor out of context and make them into absolute kind of moral dictates. You know, you can never do that. You know, the most famous famously misused passage in the gospels is the lord's warning judge not and be not judged uh that's not designed to squelch all criticism but um you have to be very careful how you do this uh and when you do it and to whom you uh, direct your evaluations and criticisms alistair you were likening that uh command or explaining that command um not to be a judge um a, a judge um as not taking matters into your own hands and that seems to be reflected in the latter half of um, verse 12 there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save or or to destroy and you know often i i, I guess in praying things like an imprecatory psalm you know that might be answered by the lord in someone's salvation you know, um, if, if we're praying that God would remove uh, an evil judge or, or someone like that, God might do that, like in Nebuchadnezzar's case, for instance, by, by their salvation. And yet taking matters into our own hands and acting violently and doing something like that is, is going to remove that possibility. It's going to take it off the table altogether because we're going to sort of set out to destroy. Um, and, and so that that seems to sort of add up what you're suggesting there. Definitely the example of Paul comes to mind here. 
if we think about the many prayers that were probably delivered after the stoning of Stephen for everyone um, involved in that, if people had just taken matters into their own hands, um, we would have lost a lot of the New Testament. Right, right. In terms of applying it to us, the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, is not just a shadow kingdom of the world. So Jesus didn't imitate the first century scribes or Pharisees or chief priests or Herod. He supplanted them. The new world that he brings into his existence is not just a continuation. It's a new order. His death and resurrection changes things. It's a new way of ordering humanity under his lordship. So, and one of the things he does is exposes the mimetic rivalry, this escalation of violence in the first century Judaism, and he humbly submits himself to death at the hands of his persecutors. And, but God, therefore, highly exalted him and uh, given him a name that was above every name. Uh, his rising from the dead his, was his vindication. And the pagan violence of the Jews and the Romans was exposed for what it is. That's, that's the lesson that um, these Christians that James is addressing need, they need to realize this. The whole epistle of James is about this. Is, and he's exposing the pagan worldly roots of this violence. He unmasks it. Um, and once this letter is copied and distributed to the churches, uh, I, I think they heed the wisdom. Early Christians embraced this. And this is why we don't have a whole lot about this. If, if, if I'm right that James is written very early on, maybe one of the first epistles to these displaced Christians out of Jerusalem, then this epistle pretty much dealt with that issue. And we don't have a lot of examples of Christians uh, engaged in this kind of violence after this. So the old system, old systems of Roman and apostate Judaism torn down, new ones put in place, and James was pretty effective in what he wrote. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.